Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry. I'm speaking to you today from the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin people. Episode 9, Typhoon, Part 2. Last episode, we looked at the opening of what the German general staff intended to be the final assault on Moscow, therefore returning to the original goal of Operation Barbarossa, which was to take Moscow, the capital, by midsummer, August 15th specifically, which would cause the communist government to collapse and give the whole European territory of the Soviet Union over to German control. Lebensraum, living space. But after the Battle of Smolensk, it was obvious to the Germans that they're not going to take Moscow by August 15th. On August 1st, they were still 400 kilometers or 250 miles away. Even for the Wehrmacht, that's a long way to go in 14 days. One lesson they learned very quickly was that resistance was far greater than they expected. In July 1941 alone, the Germans lost 63,000 casualties. Think about how many towns you know that are smaller than 63,000 residents. So let's do a little quick recap of uh, the war so far. Uh, Hitler decided at the end of July that it's important to take Leningrad and Kiev before attempting Moscow so he can cut off and destroy Soviet forces and seize the resources of Ukraine in order to feed the German war machine and its soldiers. Successful? Well, the Germans encircled Leningrad and nearly cut off any resupply to it by September and took almost all of Ukraine. So, as we heard last episode, in September, Hitler decided it's time to focus on Moscow again. Field Marshal Fedor von Bock, commander of Army Group Center, whose focus was Moscow, assembled the largest force in the history of the Wehrmacht. He's brought in Hurrying Heinz's uh, Panzer Group II from the south and Hermann Hoth's Panzer Group III from the north, plus Panzer Group IV, which was originally deployed for the drive on Leningrad. Uh, and thus depriving uh, General Lieb at Leningrad of almost all tanks. Going to quote from David Glantz's Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's Invasion of Russia, 1941. Once assembled, the German assault force numbered 1,929,406 men, excluding the Luftwaffe personnel, organized into three armies, three panzer groups, and 78 divisions, including 14 panzer and eight motorized divisions. This force fielded 14,000 artillery pieces, over 1,000 tanks, and 1,390 combat aircraft. It was the largest armada the Wehrmacht had yet assembled. The Soviets, for their side, assembled uh, another 90,000 new reserves, in, uh, in addition to the groups that they already had, defending what they called the Mozhesk Line which was named for a city about 100 kilometers west of Moscow. It curved, this line that is, curved in a great semicircle from the city of Kilinin, which is now called Tver, north of Moscow, through Volokolamsk, Mozhesk, and down around to Kaluga. Still, 
the Germans broke through this line. By the end of October, they had accomplished two more grid encirclements, capturing three fronts, three groups, that is, of whole armies, east of Vyazma, less than 200 kilometers from Moscow, and at the city of Bryansk, which is somewhat farther to the south. However, this accomplishment didn't come without huge losses for the Germans, once again. By the end of October, the Germans had suffered 686,000 casualties. This is 20% of all the forces they brought to Operation Barbarossa starting in June, um, as well as the replacements they had brought in since that day. And let's not forget, eliminating those encircled forces, those encircled Soviet forces, which means either killing them or taking them prisoner, which on the Eastern Front in 1941 pretty much meant killing them, uh, that operation would tie down several divisions for another month. Then, as we heard, in mid-October, the fine offensive weather changed. Rain and repeated freeze-thaw cycles turned the ground and the roads into mud. The biennial season of no roads began. The Rasputitsa. Rasputitsa. Again, quoting David Stiles' excellent Operation Typhoon, quote, The strangling mud of the Rasputitsa not only confronted box motorized columns with an unprecedented topographical challenge, but also denied his panzer forces their much-prized shock and rapid maneuver, end quote. Or as David Glantz put it, the mud robbed the Germans of their greatest and most prized asset, mobility. It's not that the Germans did not know Rasputitsa was coming. It happens twice every year. But remember the plan that said they'd be in Moscow by mid-August? Why would you need to prepare your military to operate in late October if the whole operation was going to be over two months before that? Still, Rasputitsa did not account for all of Germany's pause at the end of October. According to David Stile, quote, German military files make clear that the Rasputitsa accounts were only part of the difficulties Operation Typhoon would confront, and that alone it would most likely not have stopped the German offensive from maintaining its advance, albeit at a slower pace, end quote. That's one of the myths of the Eastern Front I hope to explode through this podcast. Here's another one that the Red Army was hopelessly obsolete with untrained, incompetent leaders and antiquated weapons. And that's what allowed the Luftwaffe to eliminate the Soviet Air Force on the first day of Operation Barbarossa. Take, uh, on the other hand, this note from hurrying Heinz Guderian himself, which he wrote on October 5th, as his forces were closing on a route. On this day... I gained a vivid impression of the liveliness of the Russian Air Force. Immediately after I had landed on the Psevsk airfield, 
where 20 German fighters had also just come in, the Russians bombed it. This was followed by an air attack on the Corps headquarters, which sent the glass in the windows flying about our ears. I drove at once along the road of advance of 3rd Panzer Division. Here too we were subjected to a series of bombing attacks by small groups of from 3 to 6 Russian bombers. David Stahill goes on to show the potency of the Soviet air fighters. Quote, Soviet pilots were proving capable of taking on Germany's best. On 3rd October, Heinrich Hoffmann, Germany's fourth highest ranked fighter ace with 63 victories, was shot down south of Yelnia. The third ranked ace, Hermann Friedrich Joplin, had already been killed in August. And the second ranked, Heinz Barr, was recovering in hospital from wounds sustained in a crash landing. End quote. Soviet bombers and fighters posed a major challenge to German forces throughout Barbarossa and Typhoon. From Oral at the southern end of Typhoon to the Kalinin area, Soviet bombers carried out daily attacks on panzers and infantry. And like the tanks, while German planes were being winnowed down, Soviet air strength appeared to be growing. The Germans continued to creep forward, but at a much slower rate than they had before. Churning through deep, thick mud, the panzers and other vehicles used far more fuel than they did in good weather, far more than the Germans had planned for. And every mile they advanced stretched their supply lines more, making it far more difficult to bring up more fuel, more ammunition, and more supplies. Through November, the temperature continued to fall. Gradually, the mud froze, restoring mobility to the Germans, but it also allowed the Soviets to move. So at the end of November, von Bock ordered the last push to take Moscow. Yes, they've said that before, but they really mean it this time. As described previously, the Germans are around Moscow in a great curve, having taken the anchors of the Soviets' last defensive line. Meanwhile, the Red Army was at best at 50% strength, 2.2 million in the field, down from nearly 3 million men on June 22nd, plus the million or so they had brought in from farther east in the six months since. They've lost nearly 3 million cal killed, captured, or missing in the first three months of the war, and another 2 million by December. The Germans knew that the Soviets were bringing in reinforcements. Between the end of June and the end of October, they had moved, and in many cases created, whole new armies. 43 in all brought to oppose the Wehrmacht. So the Germans knew that they had to achieve their objective now, because while they were getting weaker, the Soviets were getting stronger. The Stavka, the Soviet high command, anticipated a drive on Moscow. We heard last episode how the Soviets were furiously preparing new defenses around the capital, evacuating key industries and institutions hundreds of kilometers east. They also ordered spoiling attacks on the points where they expected the Germans to attack from, Volokolamsk to the west, Sabukov to the southwest, and north and south of the city of Tula, south of Moscow. On November 8th, the newly arrived 413th Rifle Division, with the 32nd Tank Brigade, launched such an attack southward toward Tula, so against Panzer Group II. 
while units from the Third Army moved north in an attempted pincer movement. Although it didn't stop hurrying Heinz, it did slow his advance. On November 17th, in fact, the German 112th Division learned the hard way that their anti-tank weapons were useless against attacking T-34s. They broke and ran. This panicky retreat was almost unheard of in the German army. By November 15th, the ground was now solid and the German offensive on the Soviet capital resumed in earnest. They sent 233,000 men, 1,880 guns, 1,300 tanks, and as many as 800 aircraft, although that's debatable, driving into the Western Front, plus the 30th Army to the north, against forces that numbered 240,000 men, 1,254 guns and mortars, 502 tanks, and up to 700 combat aircraft on the Soviet side. And the thing is, the Soviets were operating from well-prepared defenses. The German plan was again to go in two strikes, an encirclement, from the north of Moscow, passing east of Volokolamsk, and then across the, the Moscow-Volga Canal. And meanwhile, the uh, 2nd Panzer Group under Guderian would attack from the south, up from Tula, also pass east of Moscow, and link up with the forces coming from the north, and therefore encircle the capital. So, on November 15th, the 3rd Panzer Group, now under General Georg Hans Reinhardt, struck for the highway from Kalinin through Kalin to Moscow. The Germans split apart the Soviet defenders, who withdrew to the Volga River north of the Volga Reservoir, which is north of Moscow itself. The German 9th Army secured bridgeheads across the river and then went to the defensive positions um, to protect the left flank of Panzer Group 3, which was, at this point, sweeping eastward toward Klin. For a better idea of where all these forces are, take a look at what I've labeled as Map 1 on the website and in the show notes. On that map, for some reason, Kalinin is labeled Kulinin. Meanwhile, General Eric Hopner committed everything Panzer Group 4 had on a drive straight into the main defenses around Moscow. In three days of heavy fighting, they managed to advance less than six kilometers or four miles. But then, after committing all three of his Panzer Groups to the battle, they broke through the forces of uh, General Konstantin Rokosovsky's works. By the 20th of November, the Germans had advanced another 23 kilometers, or 14 miles. Meanwhile, in the south, Panzer Group II, under hurrying Heinz, began its assault on November 18th. This is just one day after that uh, one division had broken and run from the T-34s. Thing is, at this point, Guderian's Panzer Group was down to the strength of one brigade, that is, 50 tanks. They started at a salient east of Tula, which is itself 186 kilometers or 115 miles south of Moscow. Over the next six days, they penetrated deeper, reaching the town of Mikhailov, which is east of Tula on the 24th, deepening that salient that you can see on the map. 
Meanwhile, though, the Red 50th Army counterattacked over and over again. And fresh Soviet troops were arriving in the city of Ryazan to the northeast. That same day, November 24th, the Panzers captured Klin, north of Moscow, while Hopner captured Solnechnogorsk, which is only 70 kilometers or less than 50 miles northwest of the capital. The Soviets responded by withdrawing again to new defensive lines, some 40 miles away from Moscow on the west and only 21 miles away from the north. And still, the Germans continued to advance. By November 30th, the 2nd Panzer Division was within artillery range of the city. Quote, German officers claimed they could see the spires of the city through their field glasses, end quote. This is a common quote found in many books about the Eastern Front. I'm a little doubtful, but it could have been true. Still, it gives you an idea of just how much danger the capital of the USSR was in at this point. But now, the temperatures began to fall really fast. They set record low temperatures for this time of year. In the south, Guderian had nearly surrounded Tula by the end of November, and he was moving north, but very slowly. So Stavka sent uh, a group comprising the 2nd Cavalry Corps, supplemented by half of the 112th Tank Division, uh, and two other tank battalions, plus a combat engineer regiment, anti-aircraft units from Moscow, new recruits and cadets, and they called it the 1st Guards Cavalry Corps, set to stop the Panzer's advance from the south. On the 27th of November, this group counterattacked and drove the German 17th Panzer Division back. This was an example of the Soviet strategy of combined cavalry and mechanized forces performing what they call deep penetrations. And let's not forget their secret weapon, not so secret now, the Katyusha multiple rocket launcher. November, both Soviet and German regiments have been reduced to the size of companies, with only 150 to 200 riflemen left in each one. Both sides, in other words, were on their last legs, and it seemed the war could be determined by who could keep standing up longer. And then things changed again, just not all at once. Now comes the part you've all been waiting for, the big trope the reason most of us in the West understand to be why Germany's advance on the USSR failed. Winter. Let's explode that too. Winter conditions had begun to arrive as early as late October in some areas. Near Leningrad, temperatures fell to minus 40 Fahrenheit and Celsius in early November. 
before the final Moscow offensive began in mid-November, temperatures in that area fell to minus 15 Celsius, or 5 degrees Fahrenheit, on November 12th, and kept going down. On December 4th, the temperature fell to minus 31 Fahrenheit, minus 35 Celsius, around Moscow. So while the temperatures and conditions were far colder than the Germans were used to, and colder than they had planned for, they continued advancing. At the same time, fresh Soviet forces, whole armies, were pouring into the Moscow area. On December 1st, the Red 5th Army repelled the German advance and the defense of Narofomensk, a town 50 kilometers west-southwest of Moscow, held out against extended German attack. On December 3rd, counterattacks drove the German 4th Army back. All along the front, the Germans were forced to halt and often withdraw back to more defensible positions. By December 5th, the senior German field commanders, namely Guderian, Hopner, and Reinhardt, were reporting that their forces were exhausted and out of fuel. Up to this point, Guderian had been asking repeatedly for permission to halt, but no one back in Berlin had the balls to say anything to Hitler. By early December, hurrying Heinz could go no further. Tanks don't move without fuel. General Winter had a major impact. The Germans were over a thousand miles from their supply sources. They are out of fuel in several areas and without sufficient, suitable winter uniforms. The engines of German vehicles, including tanks and combat aircraft, had to be heated for hours, often over open flame, until the oil would flow and allow the engines to start. Meanwhile, the Red Army, or sorry, the Red Air Force, had heated hangars, closer to the front lines, ready to go. To quote from Nicholas Bethel in the book Russia Besieged, quote, West of Moscow, one mid-December day, the frozen legs of 73 dead Russian soldiers were sawed off below the knee, put in ovens, and thawed until their felt-lined boots could be slid off and given to 73 German soldiers. End quote. Gruesome, but telling. Guderian was the first major commander to halt his offensive, but Hopner and Reinhardt weren't far behind. Here's the thing. The Germans didn't know everything. While their numbers and strength were diminishing steadily throughout the war from the day one, June 22nd, the Soviets were increasing and the Germans had no idea about that. The Germans' initial successes obscured staggering losses. Between June 22nd and August 1st, the Germans suffered 74,500 casualties. By September 30th, this had climbed to over 551,000. This far exceeded Germany's ability to replace them. Germany had what it called a replacement army, a reserve force back in Germany. Its purpose was to send replacements for in its military operations. This numbered only 23,000, so a fraction of the casualties they had suffered. And they had to be transported a long way to the front lines. 
A key problem for the Germans was that their intelligence was faulty. Now, by this, I don't mean they weren't smart, because, yeah, they were. But before launching Operation Barbarossa, the Germans underestimated significantly the Soviet Union's military strength. This misapprehension showed a combination of poor intelligence or or limited uh, information gathering and the German military high command's own hubris. Their assumption that the German military was the most professional and the most successful in the world in history and was therefore unstoppable. Up to this point, it kind of looked like they were right. Take a look at France, at the Balkans, Greece, North Africa, everywhere that they had involved themselves. So uh, before June 22nd, 1941, the Germans estimated fairly accurately the total size of the Red Army at around 5 million men. However, they didn't know how much the Red Army had modernized and mechanized by 1941. The Germans identified three mechanized corps in the military districts closest to the border, completely missing another 16. The appearance of massed mechanized units in June took the Germans by surprise, as did the T-34 and KB-1 tanks, off which all but the biggest, heaviest anti-aircraft shells just bounced. Another major factor that doesn't get enough understanding in the West was the overall size of the entire Soviet army. You see, starting in 1938, the USSR had extended reserve military service obligations to every male up to the age of 50. And they created a whole lot of new schools to train these recruits. By June 1941, in the USSR, the number of men with at least basic military training numbered 14 million. Then, another little wrinkle... On April 13, 1941, the USSR and Japan signed a neutrality pact, ending the hostilities that had brought them to war in Mongolia a couple of years earlier. Not that this pact was worth the paper it was written on, as we saw with the, uh, the Soviet-Nazi non-aggression pact. But, depending on which source you read, sometime between late August and early October, Stalin heard from his secret agent in Tokyo, Richard Sorge, the same agent who had warned him specifically about Operation Barbarossa in June, and had even predicted accurately the day that it would start. In, uh, in August or September or maybe October 1941, uh, Sorge told Stalin that Japan would not attack the USSR. Their focus was in the Pacific, their enemies, the British, and the United States. This uh, lifted a lot of pressure off of the Stavka. It allowed the Soviets to transfer forces that were stationed in the Far East and in Siberia. These forces were huge. There were 30 divisions with strong cavalry, armor, and air units in the Far East. That's east of Lake Baikal. Just to the west of Lake Baikal was another line of defenses. So in total, there were nearly three-quarters of a million troops 
that were now available for the conflict in the West. So this allowed Stalin to transfer half those forces, in other words, 40 divisions by rail, to defend Moscow. From David Glantz's book, quote, The greatest German intelligence error lay in underestimating the Soviet ability to reconstitute shattered units and form new forces from scratch. Given the German expectation of a swift victory, their neglect of the Soviet capability is perhaps understandable. In practice, however, the Red Army's ability to create new divisions as fast as the Germans smashed existing ones was a principal cause of the German failure in 1941. End quote. Oops. Spoiler alert. Franz Halder, German Army Chief of Staff, complained that, quote, if we smash a dozen divisions, the Russians simply put up another dozen. End quote. At the same time, though, Moscow was creating whole new armies. From that pool of 14 million men with military training, they placed 13 new armies to oppose the Germans in July alone. In August, another 14. And more, multiple armies every month. So on June 22nd, when the Red Army comprised 5,373,000 men, by August 31st, Despite the staggering losses from fighting and the capture of millions of prisoners at Bialystok, Minsk, and Spolensk, the Red Army had grown by a net million and a half to 6,889,000 troops. By the end of the year, December 31st, 1941, the Red Army numbered about 8 million. And this was growing as the Germans were losing men. In fact, the Soviet armies have doubled in size. This growth is not just in terms of numbers of men, but also in terms of armor, air power, and everything else that an army needs to function. And by the fall, the Western allies were beginning to supply material to the USSR, including food, vehicles, and weapons. The British engineered a coup in Iran to replace the Shah to open up a supply line to the USSR beyond the reach of the Wehrmacht. My father-in-law, Maurice Burry, served in the Red Army in the summer and fall of 1941. He told me more than once how much of a difference American supplies made. He and his men loved American canned meat and American cigarettes. By the end of the war, thousands of American trucks with Soviet insignia, were driving across Eastern Europe. So what caused the Germans' drive on Moscow to fail in December 1941? It's not as simple as we learned in high school history class. It wasn't just that the vastly superior German army, superior in terms of skill, training, and weapons, if not in numbers, was stymied by mud and cold. No. It was a greater strategic and economic failure. Perhaps even more important than General Winter and Colonel Rasputitsa, it was the sheer scale of the impotent they faced, the millions of soldiers, of men and women, and the men and women civilians in the areas that would become occupied. It was the fact that 
contrary to Nazi philosophy, the communists were capable of developing highly effective new weapons, like the T-34 KV-1 tanks and the Katyusha rocket launchers. It was the surprising tenacity of Soviet fighters and Soviet people, the skill of Russian pilots, and the abilities of Russian combat aircraft. The German weapons that just weren't as good as their reputation and their complexity. There just weren't enough panzers for Operation Barbarossa. In fact, the Germans also used a lot of captured French and British tanks as well as equipment from occupied Czechoslovakia. Hundreds of models of vehicles. And this only complicated the supply of spare parts and repairs, loading the already overloaded supply chains even more. To sum up, hubris. The Germans were so assured of their own superiority, they were confident that they could conquer the largest country in the world with the world's largest military in a matter of weeks. So while winter was the stopping point, the final obstacle that halted the German advance in December 1941, it was not and could not have been the only reason for the failure. And as we'll see when we return to the narrative, the Soviets are about to bring about an astounding counteroffensive. But before that, we have to shift focus again to deal with some aspects of the war that I've neglected until now. Operations in the far north, in Finland and along the shores of the Barents Sea, and to the far south, in the Crimean Peninsula. So for now, I'll let you go. Thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the progress of the war, please see the maps and photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca, and click on the podcast button in the banner. Also, thanks to all who have supported the podcast through Patreon or the Podbean app. Your financial support goes to better audio and equipment, research, and supports for charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you find that I've made any errors, please let me know. You can reach me by email at scott at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.